Welcome to the Spaceport America podcast with me, Alice Carruth, the Public Relations Coordinator at the New Mexico Spaceport Authority. We're the state agency that runs Spaceport America. My guest on this episode is Dr. George Neal, who is the current chairperson of the Global Spaceport Alliance and very new shiny astronaut. So, George, I don't know where to begin when it comes to explaining your background, because you've done so much in your career as as part of the aerospace industry. Tell us about your history. How did you get into aerospace and how did you end up in the role that you're doing right now? Well, first of all, thank you so much for inviting me to come on. I'm very excited to to talk about some of my experiences and what's going on in the aerospace industry as a whole. I think the best place to start is right at the beginning. And growing up as a child, I was fascinated by and very interested in both aviation and space. I would cut out articles in the newspaper about the space chimps and Mercury astronauts and collect pictures from Life magazine and had my own little scrapbook, keeping track of things. Um, Watched all the the launches that I could. Uh, Been in school, I enjoyed math and science and trying to figure out where to go to college. I ended up deciding to go to the United States Air Force Academy in Colorado Springs for a number of reasons. Felt it would be a good place to learn more about aviation and space. It would be a challenge and I enjoy challenges and a chance to serve our country. So that turned out to be a a great place to do all three of those things. And then after graduation, had a number of different opportunities to, to learn more about and to become more involved in the aerospace career areas, including working on military space systems while as an Air Force officer and then serving as a flight test engineer out at Edwards Air Force Base. Very interesting assignment there. About that time, I was seeing a lot of exciting things happening at NASA. The space shuttle was getting ready to have its first flight, and NASA announced that they were going to be selecting some new astronauts, and you didn't have to be a test pilot. You could be an engineer or a scientist or a doctor, And I thought that was great. So uh, I applied to be a NASA astronaut actually a couple different times. I I made the finals twice and was invited down to Houston for an interview and physical exam, but didn't make the final cut, uh, but still was very interested in space. I thought maybe going back to school would, would help out. So asked the Air Force if they could sponsor me to go back to graduate school at at Stanford and completed my my PhD there. And then of course the Air Force likes to have you uh, return the favor, so to speak, when they help you with your tuition. So uh, they assigned me back at the Air Force Academy to teach the cadets there about space and rockets and control systems and satellites and so forth. So that was enjoyable, Uh, but I still had that interest in desire to get more closely in, involved in human spaceflight in particular. And so when I had the opportunity, uh, the Air Force was asking for people to go down to the Johnson Space Center in Houston to work with NASA and learn about the shuttle, because at that point, the, the Air Force was hoping to f- 
have its own shuttles that they would launch out of Vandenberg Air Force Base and even have their own control center in, in Colorado for the military space missions that they anticipated happening. So we moved down to, to Houston and got involved there. And that was really exciting. Got to meet a lot of other engineers and astronauts and their families. A wonderful place to live and work. After the Challenger accident, unfortunately, the Air Force seemed to lose interest in human spaceflight. But I was just loving it there in the Houston area, all the people, the schools, the neighborhoods, uh, the work. So decided to, to leave the Air Force at that point after being in for 15 years and uh, went to work for NASA so that we could continue to, to stay in the area. And so that was a wonderful opportunity. We ended up staying there in a number of years and raised our kids in Houston. And so did that for quite a while. Um, then later on, our parents were starting to get older and wanted to be a little bit closer by. So we moved back to the East Coast in Virginia and I worked for Orbital Sciences Corporation on some of their advanced projects, uh, reusable launch vehicles and space taxis, as they called them, and so forth. And that was all very interesting, too. And uh, Orbital at that time was very much a, an entrepreneurial space company, one of the first, I think, that was envisioning what space could mean to people, not just from government space agencies. But I heard about this office in the FAA called the Office of Commercial Space Transportation, and they were working on spaceports and reusable launch vehicles and space tourism. I thought, wow, that, that sounds really interesting. I wonder if I could contribute to that. And ended up applying for and being selected as the, as the deputy administrator to Pettigree Smith, who was leaving the office at that time, and uh, worked with her for a number of years as we were trying to set up the whole regulatory framework for commercial space and how would that work? And then when she retired, I was uh, picked to, to head up the office as the associate administrator and did that for 10 years and really had a chance to see some of the things that are now coming to fruition in commercial space really get started. So very interesting time. I stayed there for quite a few years and then just retired from the government uh, in 2018 and have been helping out where I can, uh, consulting and uh, offering feedback and advice and suggestions to, to others in industry, because this is just such an exciting time right now that uh, can't sit back and watch, have to be a part of it. And you're very much part of this new story, because as of March of 2022, you became an astronaut yourself. So you were part of the Blue Origin and NS20 crew. Tell us about that experience from, from the training and the launch and coming back down again. Yes, well, that was just an awesome experience. I really, really enjoyed that so much. So backing up to, to the start, again, I always thought about the idea of going into space, but as I progressed through my career, <clears throat> even though I'd had a chance to be a part of all that, uh, it was looking like probably wouldn't get to do it myself. But then last May, Blue Origin announced that they were going to auction off one of the seats on 
the first human space flight that they were planning to do in July with Jeff Bezos and his brother flying. And I thought, well, that would be great. So I raised my hand and filled out the paperwork and put in a bid. And then right away, the price just started going up so fast and it was out of reach. However, a few months later, uh, Blue Origin got back to me and talked to me about potentially getting on one of the later flights and ended up being picked to fly on, on the fourth human space flight by Blue Origin on the New Shepard rocket. So we weren't able to, to share that information right at the beginning. They wanted to have a, a big coordinated announcement and so forth. But a few weeks uh, prior to our a launch date. Uh, we were able to talk about that, and that made the whole idea a lot more exciting to be able to share the news with family and friends than everyone. But we had a couple of Zoom calls with the other members of the crew, but had not met any of them personally until we headed down to uh, Texas um, about five days before the scheduled launch. Um, most of us flew into El Paso and stayed overnight in a hotel there, and then next morning we were met by a number of different uh, Rivian electric trucks that have lots of uh, off-road capability, which comes in handy for the crew recovery after the flight. And they drove us a couple of hours to uh, Van Horn, which is a very small, quiet uh, town out in the, in the West Texas desert. And then another 20 minutes or so to the Blue Origin complex. And it's really very interesting. I'd never been there before. There's several different parts of it. There's the astronaut village, as they call it, which is very much sort of a, a West Texas ranch. And they have a place to live and dining hall and fitness center and so forth. Uh, we, we actually stayed in some Airstream trailers that they had for each of the astronauts and their, their spouse or uh, special guest. And they were named after the either the Mercury astronauts or the uh, Mercury 13, the, the women who had been through some of those early tests, but not actually been selected by NASA. And so I was in Gordo, named after Gordon Cooper. And uh, that's where we spent our time there. Also part of the complex then was the launch site one, which included the astronaut training center, much more like uh, the Johnson Space Center in terms of its facilities and so forth. There was facility nicknamed the barn where the rocket and the capsule were kept in between flights and worked on. And then the launch pad and then the, the landing pad where the booster is landed after the flights. So as, as we arrived, we got a chance to meet one another, a great group, lots of different backgrounds. Marty Allen was a turnaround specialist from California. Sharon Hagel led a, a nonprofit that she had set up for encouraging young folks, especially girls, to be interested in STEM subjects in space. Her husband, Mark, who also flew on the flight, was a real estate developer. Uh, Jim Kitchen taught entrepreneurship at the University of North Carolina. And he was also an accomplished world traveler having personally been to every country recognized by the United Nations, 193 in all, 
And so now he was looking for one more new place to go. And then Gary Lai, who was an engineer who has worked for Blue Origin for the last 18 years and was one of the ones really responsible for the architecture for New Shepard, making all those trade studies on why should it look in a certain way and what capabilities should it have and so forth. So it was wonderful to have him on the flight. So we got to know one another. Uh, we uh, got fitted for flight suits. Uh, we got special custom hearing protection earplugs because of the, the noise that was expected during the flight and, and the training too. And we had to turn in our little blue bags. We had a little zipper bag that we were allowed to put three pounds worth of special mementos and mementos and souvenirs in to take along with us on the flight. So they did an inventory of what each person wanted to bring. And I had some banners from the Air Force Academy in Stanford and uh, some little Lego astronauts to give to the grandkids and some patches from my time at the Air Force and NASA. And don't know how many of the listeners are familiar with the, the story book series, uh, Curious George, but that had been a real favorite of mine to read to our kids when they were younger. And now our fine grandkids, one of those stories called Curious George Gets a Medal is about his flight to space. And it was written back in 1957 before anybody had ever done that before. But I, I took a copy of that along just for fun. And we also uh, um, recorded some interviews that would be used during the flight and had lots of pictures taken. So that, that was just sort of settling in day as we unpacked our bags to the airstreams and got ready. That fo was followed then by three full days of training at the Astronaut Training Center. And so that was classroom time, learning about the rocket and the capsule, the trajectory, the timeline, all the things that were gonna happen. One thing that I especially liked about the, the training there was they had a mock-up of the capsule which, of course, seats six people, and each person has a window seat, a very nice, comfortable, reclined seat, and a great big window right next to it. But they had recorded all the noises and sounds from a previous space flight that had not had people on board. And so when we were going through the practice runs, they played that back at full volume. So we needed to put our hearing protection in when we were doing those training runs. And all the whirs and the hums and the beeps and the rocket engine and the bangs of the thruster and so forth. It would have been pretty scary to hear those things in flight and wonder, oh my goodness, is that normal? What's going on now? But we had become accustomed to hearing those in training. And so felt very accustomed, very accustomed to what was going to happen, seeing the displays that showed the time and the altitude and the speed and the Mach number and special events like crossing the Kármán line or uh, getting ready for the parachute deployment and so forth, and uh, just running through that. We also spent an awful lot of time practicing ingress and egress. So getting into and getting out of our seats. That's different if you do it in 1G on the ground, like before flight and after the landing, and trying to get back in your seats in, in weightlessness. And the straps are floating around and you better make sure that you don't unbuckle before you take your feet out of the 
foot loops or you're going to be turning somersaults and, and doing things, ending up in an unexpected position. So anyway, we did that lots of times. We had a chance to go visit the rocket and capsule in the barn while they were being prepared for flight to see those firsthand and then to go out to the, the launch site where the towers were located and we would be flying from and just continue to review those things over and over again, ask questions. And then it was time for, for launch. So there was an early wake up. It was still dark out. We got a chance to uh, have a bite to eat and then meet with our families to give them a big hug before the flight. And then the families got a little bit more time before they had to set out for the, the viewing stands. But we were loaded into the Rivians that, that took us back to the astronaut training center, got our flight seats on, did one more review of how things were going to work and one more set of practice runs of ingress and egress in the capsule. Um, the CEO of Blue Origin, Bob Smith, came by to assure us he had been personally involved in all the preparations and to wish us Godspeed and a safe and successful mission. So that was great to see him. And then 45 minutes before launch, we drove out to the launch site and we saw the rocket sitting there on the pad. It had been reeled out uh, about eight hours prior, a little after midnight of the night before. And it was just before dawn and you could see all the lights on and we just stood it and looked at it and then driven up, up close to one of the towers there and we had to climb up seven flights of stairs. But, you know, I think the adrenaline was pumping then because none of us even <laughs> needed to stop and catch our breath. It was just such an exciting thing. The first thing we did was checked in to the little shelter that they have at the top of the tower there, or the safe house, if you will. And that would be where we would go if there was a major problem at the launch pad after the pad had been evacuated. And we'd go in there, close the door, make sure everyone was there. They have extra atmosphere to, to breathe. They have a radio to check in and report on our status, first aid kits and all those things. And we were told that even if the rocket were to explode on the pad, if we were in that shelter we would be safe at that point so that was encouraging and then uh, just a few minutes later we were told all right it's it's time to to hop in the capsule so one by one we walked down the, the gateway under which under an arch that says uh, light this candle which are alan shepherd's words as he got ready for his flight as the first american in space uh, blue origin has a Nice tradition they've started as, as people head down that walkway, they have a little bell on the side and you clang the bell just to announce you're coming on board. And then one by one, we, we loaded into our seats. Uh, we were followed up by a person they call uh, crew member seven. So that was Sarah Knight who works for Blue Origin. She didn't actually go on the flight, but she had been leading most of the training we had done and then double checked that everybody was properly strapped in and gave us a, a final pep talk at the end. Everybody was good, gave her the, the thumbs up. And then she 
exited the capsule, closed the hatch, and then retreated down all those stairs, hopped in the Rivian, and, and drove away a mile or so to be safe. And so we were all by ourselves then, strapped into the capsule. They had the, the final countdown. We heard the voice of Kevin Sprogue, who was the capsule communicator or Capcom. And then the final go, no go poll about 10 minutes prior and then counting down. 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. At zero, the engines ignite, and you could see orange flames on the windows, and it was even reflected on the white ceiling of the capsule, but we had been warned that that would be the case. I've heard shuttle astronauts describe liftoff as a kick in the pants. This was not that way. This was... Nice and smooth, but a rapid acceleration. And we were off to the races, uh, clearing the tower about 12 seconds after engine ignition. Um, then um, maximum dynamic pressure is uh, about a minute after launch. And then a little more than, than two minutes later, after we experienced about three Gs of acceleration being pushed in, Back in our seats uh, was the main engine cutoff, or Miko. And then just a few seconds later, big bang as the capsule separates from the booster itself. And at that point, they turn the fans off, so it's quiet, and you can unstrap and float around, and it's exhilarating. Um, we, we quickly gathered together for uh, a, a picture. They had. 12 different cameras around the capsule to record everything. So we have lots of ways to remember that special day. And then I actually was sitting next to Jim Kitchen, the world traveler. He had brought his passports along. So I pretended to give his passport a stamp as marking the, the new border he had crossed here into space. And time for a few somersaults and floating around upside down. And then, frankly, most of the rest of the, the three minutes that we had in weightlessness, I and, and the others were, were looking out the window because as exciting as this entire mission was, the highlight, without a doubt, was the view out the window. And it's, it's hard to put into words. You can see the curvature of the Earth. You see this bright blue but very narrow band right above it which is the atmosphere and then you see this black 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 sky blacker than you can imagine and it is just so beautiful i mean i, I just choke up and get goosebumps just thinking about it. it it is just the most beautiful thing i've ever seen and it's spectacular and it makes you feel so tiny in the vastness of space. But being able to have that perspective is just awesome. I so can see that, you really choking up at that thought. And, and that kind of touches on the idea of this overview effect and why people go to space. And I'm really interested to hear, and I'm hoping you'll finish the story as well, why you chose to do this and what you think this is going to do to affect the way you 
you progress from now on? What does this experience inspire you to do? So it's a great question, and it's, it's tough to come to grips with all that. Of course, this entire mission was just over 10 minutes long, so that's not much time. But it certainly was very moving, very emotional, very exhilarating, and will be something that I never forget. And so uh, overview effect, uh, you know, did it change me? Well, I, I think so, but let me describe it this way. Uh, I'm not sure about you, but uh, for me, if I read a particularly good book, it's like, wow, you know, that, that made me think of things in a different way. Or if you uh, watch a particularly good movie or play, it's like, goodness, that, that was special. That's something. A favorite song or beautiful symphony. Again, I can find that very moving and it brings back memories from another time, another era when I heard that song or first learned it or learned the words, whatever. This was all of those wrapped together and, and more. So it was the experience itself, all the things that were happening, all those things you were seeing, hearing, feeling, and just coming to grips with all of that. Just really, really special. So what does it mean to think that in 61 years since the first human space flight, there have been only 621 people who have been to space. And I am so fortunate to not be one of them. But we need to get that number up because it's such an amazing experience. And I'm so excited about all the things that we can do in and from and using space that we, we need to figure out how more and more people can have this experience and take advantage of all their ideas and all their observations. It reinforces my strong belief that space is our future and it's important for us as a country and, and as the human race. But as we do this, if we're going to fulfill some of the visions of these people like Richard Branson, who wants to have the first global space lines, or Jeff Bezos, who says millions of people living and working in space to benefit Earth, or Elon Musk wanting to enable humanity to be an interplanetary species. If we're going to do those, it's going to take more than test pilots engineers, scientists. It's going to take mechanics and technicians. It's going to take welders. It's going to take people who know how to build things. It's going to take writers and musicians and poets and athletes and people who, who know how to give tours and communicate well and manage hotels and all those kinds of things. So it's interesting. I hear Jeff Bezos uh, sometimes talk about the fact that, in his opinion, you don't choose your passions. Your passions choose you. You know, I don't know if that's true for everybody, but if there are people out there who are passionate about space, no matter what their educational background is or what their current occupation is or what their interests are, 
stick with it because there is a place for you in our future in space. It's going to take all kinds of people and we want you and we need you. So that's what I'm motivated to try to, to work towards uh, after my flight and, and whether it's through the development of spaceports like Spaceport America and others or talking in schools or just helping to do a better job of explaining why space means so much to all of us, not just a select few. Um, that's what I'm going to focus on. So you touched a little bit on spaceports there. You're actually the chair of the Global Spaceport Alliance and you sit with me on the Academic Partnership Working Group Board uh, where we're hoping to spread the words about why we go to space and why it's important for humanity. What do you think spaceports like Spaceport America should be doing to make space more accessible to just the general public? First of all, I think it's important to recognize that that spaceports are not all alike and they shouldn't be. They each have special skills and interests to support their communities and to take advantage of, of the people and the interests of, of those in the surrounding areas. But, but we all have a lot of work to do to, to help people understand that spaceports are not just places where you launch and recover rockets. They can be so much more than that. They can be aerospace focal points and technology hubs where a lot of different kinds of activities take place either at or nearby the spaceports. And we've talked about this before, but things like manufacturing, education and training, research and development, testing, suborbital or orbital space tourism. And then I think just in the next, say 10 years, point-to-point -point transportation through space. I think that's gonna be a huge game changer. If you can go from one place on earth to, to the other side of the earth in, in say an hour, instead of 20 hours or more on some airline flights these days, that's gonna change how we travel, yes, how we communicate, how we do business, and hopefully can help bring us all together more as, as a world. And so those are all things that can happen at spaceports, both the ones that are currently in existence and other ones that, that may be developed in the future. So they're, they're not all the same. They're not launching all the same kinds of rockets, but they can help people to understand what space can offer. They can help people gain experience and, and learning and be motivated and then get some practice or some experience. Is this something I want to be a part of? Hopefully the answer is yes, and it can lead to a transition internships, co-ops, all kinds of things, apprenticeships that can get people plugged in in a wide variety of different ways to this exciting future. So you touched a little bit on the idea of space tourism there, and now you've been a space tourist yourself. And I know that it's been a debate in the media of whether or not you are classed as an astronaut. Having gone through that experience, and you talked a lot about that training that you did with Blue Origin, do you think the argument over a title really matters anymore? Or do you just think the experience is, is far more important? I understand it, it's meaningful to some people, but I don't think it, it is helpful or appropriate to just argue over definitions. Uh, the point is, um, for people that are interested in doing it, it's wonderful. I encourage them to give it a try. 
I think they'll like it. <laughs> and uh, there's different kinds. It can be suborbital, it can be orbital. Eventually we're gonna have point to point. Um, there's talk of, of flying around the moon or actually landing on the moon or being part of a, a small scientific base there or eventually going to Mars. Uh, it, it's not so much the words, it's the experience. And again, it's not one size fits all in terms of the experience. Yes, there's important scientific research that can be done. Many people believe there are products that you can make, discoveries that you can achieve only in the space environment or only in weightlessness or in, in a more efficient or less costly way if we do that. But the experience itself is certainly that many people would benefit from or enjoy. And, and so it doesn't have to be, this is what you have to be doing. This is how much you have to pay. And this is the way you have to do it in order to get some title. Um, that's not how we treat most of the other activities we have on earth. And so I, I think that's uh, much ado about nothing. I appreciate that answer. And I agree with you. Um, I, you obviously flew to space from Van Horn, Texas, and you talked a little bit about that experience. And, and they're our neighbors, essentially, where we are at Spaceport America. What do you think about this idea of a new space valley and these new spaceports that are, are coming up? You know, the difference between a private spaceport like Blue Origins and a state-owned spaceport like Spaceport America. And, and, and developing it here in this inland area, what, what do you see as the future of that? And what do you see as the benefit of that as well? So again, it's not one size fits all. What we need to do, in my opinion, is figure out how to partner. And so there can be government owned and operated sites. There can be privately owned and operated sites. There can be commercial sites that have their FAA license. Maybe they're a state entity or a local entity or a county, community, and so forth. And uh, if we can all work together as a network, if you will, of, of spaceports, then I think we can help one another. We can share ideas. We can share lessons learned. We can complement one another in terms of the kinds of missions that are accomplished or the kinds of people that want to, to work or experience uh, these activities. And so, yes, I, I think there's a, a lot of potential there. And in the past, it's, it's been hard to have people get comfortable with at least the safety, if not the economics of inland spaceports. But now that reusable launch vehicles, reusable systems are becoming more accepted and hopefully more reliable in the future, then I think it's going to be possible to have these systems operate a lot closer to populated areas than we would have expected in the past. And starting out, almost all of our launches were done right next to the ocean. So you could fly to, out over the water. We did have some sites like Spaceport America and Mojave and so forth that are out in unpopulated areas of the desert and so forth. But again, if we're really gonna have this be successful, I think one aspect is going to be things like point-to-point -point transportation, and you don't want to have to drive for hours to get to the spaceport before you save your time on your around-the-world flight and so forth. And so uh, we're going to need to continue to improve the safety, the reliability, and the cost-effectiveness of these systems. And how are we going to do that? I believe we'll do it by getting lots of practice. So we need data points. We need experience. 
we need to learn from these operations, whether they're being paid for by wealthy people doing a joyride or whether they're part of government-sponsored scientific research. Every time we do one of these launches, we're going to learn a little bit more about what works, what do we need to change or modify in our designs, how do we want to operate so that they can be safer, more reliable, and more cost-effective in the future. And that's how aviation developed over its century of operations. There were lots of fatal accidents in the beginning, but now it's the safest way to travel. And I see that same progression taking place with human spaceflight, hopefully at a faster pace and taking advance, advantage of advanced technologies. But we can continue to improve so that it does open up to, to more and more people for more and more tight flights. Dr. George Neal, thank you so much for joining us on this episode of the podcast. We look forward to seeing you progress with your outreach and to tell, share this experience with more people in the future. Thank you very much for having me.